And as we're doing that, here's, I need you guys to hear my heart real quick on two very important things that I want to challenge us with, especially I want to challenge your generation with. Uh, there's, there's two things that are really on my heart as of recent, uh, more, more so than ever. And so um, as I listen to when you guys do small groups and stuff like that, it's, it's so great and it's so cool. But sometimes I think we almost just go through the questions and then we just kind of sit there because we finish the questions and we almost feel like we're not allowed to talk about anything else. Um, so there's two amazing things that I want us to do. A, I want and encourage everybody to go back to that table and grab a note-taking piece of paper. Most of you already have them. That's phenomenal. Huh? They're out? Wow. I don't, well, there's also really obnoxiously big refinery postcards that are blank on one side. Grab one of those and take notes or better yet, get a journal and you can take notes like you do on Sunday mornings and you can do that here. Second, Hopefully I didn't run out of these yet. Uh, there's also Bibles back there. I want to challenge us because this is something that I've always just been, I feel like I've been kind of weird with. Um, and you can ask Jess, like I'm just super weird about like, I love the feel and the, the sense of just being able to actually be like in an actual Bible. Like I think when we're on our phones and like on electronics so often trying to find scripture, we get lost. And I think it's, I, was, I mentioned this to a group of us that came in a little bit earlier. Pastor Aaron made this analogy. Me and him were talking one day, kind of walking around campus, and we were getting ready to go somewhere. And it was like 15 minutes away, and I had no clue where I was going. And he's like, you live here. I was like, yes. And I've lived here for a very long time, and I still have no idea where to go. If you ask Jess, I was trying to drive her to Orlando one time, and I missed an exit three times. <laughs> the same exit three times. And he made, he, it was this cool analogy of back from the church that he came to us from, this lady who she's really good in discipleship and evangelism. She made this statement. She said, you know what was really cool? Back in the day, she said, I, I, you know, I lived in Dallas. I think I attested the story to him, but it's really it was someone in, at his church. She said, you know, I lived over in Dallas, and back then it was MapQuest, right? How many of you guys even know what MapQuest is? Oh, solid, good. Yeah, you'd have to print out the directions like it was your paper GPS, she, she said, I knew, exa- I could tell you where I was after a while. I didn't need maps. I didn't need anything. I could tell you how to get there in a giant radius. And then all of a sudden, GPS came around. And she said, I moved to a new area. I didn't know where to go. So I started using the GPS. And she goes, I've now been here for 15 years. And I can't tell you how to get somewhere five minutes away. And she said, you know what the scary thing is? It's the same way with scripture. She said, we used, to, we used to have be such a generation of knowing the Bible and the ins and outs of where the books are laid out and how they are. We have kids' songs about the 66 books, right? Like, she, she said, you can navigate the pages, and I could tell you where to go or what area to be in, and it was beautiful. But nowadays, if I can't remember anything, I just go to Google, and I just say, hey, what verse was this again? And you know what? As soon as he told me that story, I, it impacted my heart because I am that way too. I can tell you roughly where most topics and situations and, and, and things are in scripture, right? But man, to be able to give you that reference or just off the top of my head, know exactly where I'm going to turn because I've navigated the pages. I've, I've done the work of messing up and going, man, there isn't a book of Moses. And if you've ever done sword drills before, you know that people are throwing out weird books like that, Right? And you get duped, and you're just like, oh my goodness, I almost did sword drills in here, and then I was like, nah, I, don't, I won't do that to us tonight. But so I encourage all of us, if you don't have a paper Bible, it's all that long story to say, I want us to become a generation who uses paper Bibles again. 
I want us to be a generation that's proud to walk around with one of these. We were talking about over here at the school, like it's all iPads and laptops and all these things. Like you can't book check people anymore because you're gonna it's gonna cost you five thousand dollars. Back in the day, you could walk around book check people and it wasn't that big of a deal because you're like, oh no, you tore a page. Now it's like you break a laptop, <laughs> right? Like let's go back to the days where like we could, you know, don't book check a Bible, but you know what I mean? Like it's there, like you, it's it's you know it's it's there. And that, so my heartbeat is that. And so if you don't have one, we have them in the boxes back there. If that runs out, we have them in the other room. No shame if you get up and grab one now. I encourage it. But if you have your Bibles tonight, we are in Revelation chapter 3. We are coming up on the last of the two churches that we have left. And this is going to be the church called Philadelphia. Which, this church has a way better outcome than the football team. Listen. This church, didn't, this church doesn't choke. So, anyway, sorry. I didn't like either team anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> All right, so here's the big thing. As we cover this church tonight, uh, instead of just going brotherly love, which is what everyone in Philadelphia stands for, brotherly love. I mean, they like riot and destroy the city every time their team wins or loses. So, I don't know how brotherly love it is, but, you know, fly, eagles, fly. Um, but if we've, if we've gone through enough of these churches, right, as I've mentioned, as, as Trevor's mentioned, as he's come up here and taught, Jesus, Jesus was the originator of the sandwich method. You guys, like, I, I see you're standing tall. You're standing tall for absolutely the wrong things, but you're standing tall, so let's learn to stand tall for the right things, right? Like, it's like the, you did really good. You really suck here, though, but, like, it's okay, we can get better. And all of a sudden, now to the second last church, we actually don't see this methodology being used. And it's this gleaming hope that I actually think is still a rarity today. This church is a representation of a body of local believers who, as a whole, were standing in genuine faith. All the churches that we've covered in the past, it was always like, there's a few left. Or there's a couple of you who are still doing well. But a lot of you are on a straight path to hell. Or you've fallen away. Or if you've backslidden. Now let's recoup. Let's regather. You either need the gospel to be saved or you need the gospel to get you back on track. That's kind of the vibe we've always gotten. And yet this church, from what we can gather as a whole, was very few to begin with, but was standing firm. They were enduring well. And if you guys were with us in the fall, we did a series called Sunday School Stories, and each Sunday School Story, we pulled out about two to three key doctrines. Right? Because when we hear the word doctrine or theology, a lot of us lock up and we're like, that's gross, that's for the weird people who just study books all day long, just give me Jesus, I don't need theology. And that's a theological statement to begin with, but that's fine, we won't argue with those people. Right? But, but that's the mentality of the church at large because when we start saying like doctrine and theology, we start going, you're being way too legalism. We're, you're legalistic. You're being way too dogmatic. You're not allowing the spirit to work. You're not being spirit filled. Right? And so people want to shy away from this one side. So what do we do? It's like a pendulum, right? We don't want to be over here. So instead of kind of just like cozying down to the middle, 
We radically just run the other way, and then we're just over here going like, well, whoopsie-daisies. How did we end up all the way over here? And so we got to find that middle ground again, and that's been my heartbeat with you guys. And I loved it when, when Pastor Aaron, one of the first times he spoke, he talked about um, punctinular sanctif- or, uh, justification, like it, that salvation happens in a moment. And he said, he said the word and he said the doctrine of, and what made my heart so happy is if you're new to Sunday mornings, I encourage you, A, come to us on Sunday mornings and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about because there's like a student section that's like spray painted and it just says young adults refinery, right? And it's the best thing ever. But we all, they all sit down in the front left and then we do the thing called platform pass. So we get to do the announcements like uh, Emily did tonight. And I get to go up and do announcements. And I'm, so I'm sitting there and all of a sudden, Pastor Aaron says the, that word. He says, he says doctrine. And what made my heart so happy was the majority of you guys in the young adult section just went. <laughs> like, but we don't see that in our generations anymore. We don't see the excitement for that anymore. When I first got here, one of the best things that I ever heard was, hey, you're preaching scripture for scripture's sake. That's what Pastor Jeff does. You're not willing to just run around and kind of preach kind of topically and kind of pull verses to make it work for an agenda. You're willing to go verse by verse. That's what our senior pastor does. And so we have this this legacy as a church for preaching truth and truth alone. And I think that's led to such an amazing... There's a lot of talk about revivals in churches going on right now and at universities. Can I tell you what a really amazing revival could look like? Is a group of young adults in their early 20s, late teens, right, 18 up till 28, uh, carrying a paper Bible, taking notes during messages, getting, as we talked about last week, getting church friends... Willing to say, no, I don't have to fit into the the norm of my age and my generation to go out and do dumb stuff and then on Sunday mornings sit there with my Sunday best. I can actually go hang out with that person on a Tuesday. You want revival? It starts with you first in your own heart and to stop fleeing from the conviction that you've labeled as condemnation. Start diving into that conviction. We don't need all these crazy things that are happening to then spark anything. What you need is just to repent and turn back to the Lord, which is the message you hear all through Scripture. We always go, man, we wish we could just have that here. You can. Get serious about your walk with the Lord. Not, there's nothing special about what's going on in those places. What they're doing is they're just submitting to the flow of the Lord and the movement of the Spirit with truth. And if it's not with truth, it usually comes out and they'll start acting really crazy about, you know, six hours in. So let's, let's be a generation that's willing to just go back to the orthodoxy of our faith, willing to have a Bible and read it, willing to grab friends and pray together, willing to say, you know what, Sunday mornings are going to be a priority in our lives. You know what, I take pride in the fact that I got baptized. I take pride in the fact that I get to go to a church and, and take part in communion together. I take pride in those things. Why? Because it's all about King Jesus. But we've lost this grip 
of orthodoxy in our lives today. We've gone so far from, we don't want to be dogmatic because that's how we get hated by the world. So we're just going to be super, we label it spirit-filled. But you're just crazy emotional over here going, oh, the breeze just, when it hit me on the beach, it just made me think of John 3.16. And we just swing the far, we don't need anything about what's over here. You guys go sit in your posh chairs and your ivory towers. We'll sit over here by the water and be real Christians. But in the midst of both parties, there's one downfall that I'm hitting on tonight. And I hope that we can remedy tonight. Because whether you're, you're kind of locked in over here on the dogma phase or you're locked in over here on the super emotional phase, and eventually we're all going to come kind of meet in the middle and go, wow, we were all kind of a little crazy. But you know what the struggle is with everyone on that spectrum? You might not be having it in this moment, and I think a lot of you actually do, and you just hide it very well. But how many of you have questioned your salvation? How many of you guys have doubted that it truly is there? How many of you have wondered if you've sinned enough that God just might be over you and done with you, like that parent or that friend, that loved one? How many of you guys have so taken the label of this world and the people that have treated you poorly and put it onto God? I promise you, if we all were honest with ourselves tonight, every single one of us in this room who is truly safe says, yes, I have doubted. I have doubted whether I'm saved or not because sometimes it feels so distant and lonely. I feel like I'm the only one. I feel trapped. I got just one opening story into this, and I'm going a little longer in my intro than I normally do, but it's this important to me that we understand this. See, I fell into the trap that a lot of people do when they have nothing else to identify with, right? You find something and you just make that your identity. Well, there's a thing that really sucks in Christian culture is we allow our ministry to become our identity. We allow our service that we do at the church to become our identity and not King Jesus. And so what happened is I got saved when I was 16. I was a punk until about 18. If you ask Jess, I'm probably still a punk, but it's fine. Just kidding. Probably am. But I, but I got saved at a camp, which is actually the same camp we're going to be going to do our retreat at. I got saved at Word of Life at one of their summer camp programs, and it was the best thing ever. And so when I caught wind that there was a camp internship happening at a camp in Lakeland, I, I jumped on it. I was never really strong in my faith. I was like, man, I'm, I'm going to be, this is by God's grace alone if I even get this thing. And sure enough, I got it. And then after three years of being there full time, immersed in it in Polk County, I had the weird beard and the camo hats and everything. I went all in. God pulled me back out. But I moved, I moved back home. And for six months, I couldn't sleep in my own bedroom. Because every moment I closed my eyes at night, I said, where in the world is my identity? Am I even truly saved? Because for three years straight, it was, yeah, I'm Mitch from Camp Gilead. Oh, what's Camp Gilead? Oh, let me tell you, it's this Christian camp. Oh, you're a Christian? Yeah. It took five minutes for me to even be able to tell someone that I belong to Jesus. I would never just walk up and be like, hey, I'm a Christian. How are you? It was always like, hey, I'm Mitch, the camp guy. Because it was easier to hide behind a facade and cling to that tangibleness of the facade than to just cling to Jesus and say, this is me, and I might look a little crazy. 
to the unsaved person, we might look a little crazy when we just walk up and say, I belong to Jesus. And so what it did to me is when my identity was now gone, I couldn't even sleep in my own childhood bedroom. I thought moving rooms was going to solve my depression. Weirdly enough, I thought the sound of traffic, it was like white noise at the point, I should have just put white noise on, but the sound of traffic helped me kind of finally doze off. But do you see how detrimental it was? it was? It was scary to me. So many times I almost walked away from the faith because of it. Man, how could I serve so heartedly for three years? And all of a sudden, here I am going, man, is Jesus even real? It wrecked me. But what it did is the Spirit convicted me to say, no, now it's time to dig in and truly identify with Jesus. And when you truly identify with Jesus, this beautiful doctrine called eternal security or perseverance of the saints will never ring more true and proud for you. And so that's what we're going to cover tonight through this church. This church radiates this doctrine so beautifully that I had to bring it up. And some of you might be asking, what in the world is that? Glad you asked. I'm going to read to you. Perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will and will preserve as a Christian until the end of their lives and then only those who preserve until the end have been truly born again. It's this contingency of the reality that if you're truly his, you're going to make it to the end. And if you made it to the end, then you've always been his. It's this beautiful thought. And then there's a follow-up. There's actually, I'm giving you two, but it's by the same guy, so it counts. But here we see why the phrase eternal security can be misleading. And this is where I was talking about the pendulum. I want, he, he's talking about, the, about where we need to be careful with the way we preach the gospel. He says, but we see that the phrase eternal security can be misleading. In some evangelical churches, instead of teaching the full and balanced presentation of the doctrine, pastors have sometimes taught a watered-down version, which in effect tells people that all who once made a profession of faith have been, and are, and been baptized are eternally secure. The result is that some people who are not genuinely converted at all may come forward at the end of an evangelical sermon to profess faith in Christ and may be baptized shortly after, but then leave the fellow. And this is where we need to pay attention, especially if you've been to Indian Rocks most of your life, grew up in the church, went to a Christian school. This is where we need to pay attention. Because I think we know a lot of people like this. See, they, they professed faith at one point. They may have gotten baptized in an emotional chapel, and then shortly after, they graduate seniors, and they, they leave the fellowship of the church, he says, and they live a life no different from the one they lived before they gained eternal security. In this way, people are given false assurance and are being cruelly deceived into thinking they are going to heaven when they are not. See, this is why we need to understand the gospel isn't just a quick, da, John 3.16, and run. The gospel is the power unto salvation. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power for your eternal soul to be saved and reconciled. The gospel message deserves more than three seconds. And so we begin into Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Yeah. It, Jesus tells John, he says, Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, 
Thus says the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. And every time Jesus starts a letter to one of these churches, what the description he gives is so important to either the correction or the affirmation that he gives to the church as a whole. And so what he's talking about, he's the holy one. That's a, that's a given, right? That's pretty obvious. He's the true one. Okay, I am the way, the truth, the life. I mean, most of us probably get that. Even if we don't get it fully, we get those are two things we understand. Uh, he has the key of David. Well, then David needs the key back, right? Like David's missing his Volvo. No, what, what's so important about this? And something I've hoped has been made clear through this series is Jesus is always bringing them back to the Scripture. Or as we would say, it brought him back to the Old Testament. See, for us, there's this, there's this weird notion that like they, in the early church, were just walking around with one of these and they were like all scholarly with their leather-bound goatskin Bibles. No, see, their scripture was the Old Testament. The Old Testament is what they had. As the other letters that were inspired were being circulated through the early churches, as Paul was being inspired and writing them and sending them out, they had those, they could put it against their scriptures they already had and say, cool, Paul's no, talking, Paul knows what he's talking about. And so what Jesus is doing to these seven churches, he's saying, hey, the scriptures that you've been studying, hey, guess what? They're still being continued. I actually am the fulfillment of them. I am the word made flesh. And so he's ringing a very true statement to them when he says, I have the key of David. It's actually found in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 20 through 25. It says, On that day I will come for my servant, Elikim, son of Hilkiah. Probably butchered half of these. Yeah, I can't read my cataract. Hil- Hil- Hilkiah, there you go. I will clothe him with your robe and tie your sash around him. I will hand your authority over to him, and he will be like a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judea. I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulders. What he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. That sounds pretty familiar, right? I will drive him like a peg into a firm place, and he will be a throne of honor for his father's family. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's family, the descendants of the offshoots, all the small vessels from bowls to every kind of jar. Verse 25, on that day, the declaration of the Lord of armies, that peg that was driven into a firm place will give away, be cut off, and fall. And the load of, on it will be destroyed. Indeed, the Lord has spoken. See, it sounds really good until the last part right there. But if we've paid any attention to Scripture and we paid any attention to the reality of what kings were to Jerusalem and Israel, kings were always but a foreshadow. See, he fell. The peg that he once was was removed. Man, he was given the key. And so what does all this mean for us? See, in the midst of all the darkness, if you read the beginning of Isaiah... It's all just like judgment on so-and-so, so-and-so really sucks, more judgment on these people, these people can drown, I really don't care, so-and-so, judgment, judgment, judgment. And in the midst of judgment, there's little glimpses, you read them, there's like a song of praise from, from the prophet, there's, a, there's all these things, and all of a sudden we read about Eliakim, who is but a foreshadow for us. Why? Because he was a peg that was firmly put in. 
And we're like, yes, the Messiah, he's done it. He's did it. The king of kings, David, the seed of, the seed of David has been filled. I can't imagine how much they were probably rejoicing in that moment. And yet he failed like David, like Solomon, like Hezekiah, like all these others to come, they failed. All the kings that they thought were going to bring that military rule and victory have failed them, but it gives us the picture of why Jesus says, I have the key of David. See, the king was given the key. It's like, and we watered this message down so much because we hand them out like it's saltwater taffy. But like when someone does something pretty decent now, they're like, oh, here's a key to the city. <laughs> you get to be mayor for the day, right? But back then, the reality was is they were, they, the king had the key to the kingdom. What that meant was he said, yeah, you're allowed in, you're not. You screwed up, you're out. The king had ultimate control of who lived and dwelled in their kingdom and in their protection. He had the key so if he opened the door to you, it was open. If he closed the door on you, it was closed. So the key of David, now that Jesus says, I have the key of David, he's saying, I have the key to the kingdom of God. Everything that was foreshadowed through the kings, the prophets, and the priests, everything that was foreshadowed through the covenants, everything that was working its way up to now, I have in fullness. He has the reality to let us into the eternal kingdom of God. So then what can we say about perseverance of the saints? What can we say about your salvation being secure? What can we say that you, O oh saint, can have hope? You can have more than hope. You can have eternal joy knowing that you are a daughter or a son of the ever-living king. What shall we say? What does this look like for us? How does Jesus play this out? Because this one verse alone isn't probably enough for most of us in this room to just throw out all doubt. So we continue. Verse 8. I know your works. Look, most of us, we hear that and we're triggered. We're like, okay, he's going to say, I know your works, but yet you're dead inside. All right, we're just right back at it. He says, I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because, I have, oh, because you have little power. Yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Note this. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to endure. I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole earth or whole world to test those who live on the earth. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold to what you have so that no one takes your crown. This is the beauty of what we talked about when we went through the James series because there's always these people out there, right? And this is these are, these are a lot of the people who truly have a lot of doubt in their salvation because they're the, they're the ones who said, you know what? There was a moment in my life when I did get saved. But I used my own key and I opened and unlocked my heart and I said, Jesus, yes, you, can, you have permission now. 
I'm going to let you save me. Right? It's just, it's just that easy, right? Just invite him into your heart. Do a little welcome home party. And it's golden. You're right as rain. You were doing pretty good, and he's just made you all that better. They say there's no, you can't, you can't judge a person's salvation. You can't have discernment to know if you truly are his. And yet Jesus has made it clear over and over again that you can. James has made it clear over and over that there is discernment, that there is fruit. John 15, we went like five months through it with Pastor Jeff and every week was saying, no, you only can do anything if you are in Christ. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. He says, I will make you produce fruit. Well, okay then. It doesn't say, I will make it so that if you want to, you can, but if you don't, it's fine. He says, no, no, no. I chose you, and not even just that. I chose you, and I'm going to do works through you. So he says, I know your works. You've kept his word, a living faith that is founded on the word, not just the works, right? Because ultimately, a lot of people can do good things. But what is the foundation of those good things? Is it a selfish desire to feel better in the name of Jesus? Or is it because you're so madly in love with Jesus, you can't help but want to live like him? You might say you're splitting hairs, but see, the word of God splits bone and marrow, soul and spirit. The word of God wants us to be particular on everything we believe and claim. Because we don't have a vague faith. We have an evidential faith. We don't have a blind faith like everyone tries to claim. That's a straw man argument that died in the 90s. We have evidential faith. Hebrews says it. Have not denied the name. See, there's a yearning to respect Jesus. You want a really good indicator that you're truly his? Because on this side of heaven, you're a sinner saved by grace, but then conviction from the Holy Spirit happens, and when you do even commit the littlest sin... You start to go, man, I'm pretty sure Jesus is against this. And you might continue on, right? And he's going to have to whip you a little harder with some repercussions, and you'll get back on track. But that, that inkling, see, we've, almost, we've, we've damned the struggle in people's lives. We've brushed them so far under the rug when we say, oh, you're struggling, just have more faith. Oh, you're not feeling like you're close to the Lord? Oh, just have more faith. No, see, the struggle is actually a fruit. The fact that you're sitting there, man, tonight, if you're in, if you're in these chairs going, man, am I saved? Do I love Jesus that much? That's a pretty good indicator that you're feeling the conviction of the Spirit. Because if you can sit in these chairs and go, whatever, I go to church on Sunday, that's good enough. I don't have to read my Bible throughout the week, I get it read to me. It's like self-serve, right? You just, just gets given to you. We don't need it. It's a pretty good indicator that we need to talk about the gospel after this. Because it says you've kept his word and have not denied his name. The one who falsely believes will be brought to the... See, the Jews thought they were God's true people. The Jews today still think we're all idiots. 
Everyone's always so infatuated with friends of the Jews and let's go rebuild everything. Let's go do all this stuff. They look at us like we are dumb. They look at us like, we actually did you a favor by killing him. Like, wake up and keep going with the law. He's actually saying, no, like them and all the other pagan religions of that day out there are false. And one day, all of them will truly know who King Jesus is. A day will come where not a single person will know that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And it might be an acknowledgement as they walk into the gates of hell, and hopefully it's an acknowledgement as they get their tears wiped away and are welcomed home for eternity. But no one will be without excuse. See, in verse 10 and 11, there's some of us in this room who would probably want to have five-hour-long discussions with me about what this could mean. Right? But if you're curious as to what I'm talking about, the verse 10 and 11 allude to something that we talk about called the rapture. There's this allusion to it. And so, without diving too far in or getting too nerdy, there is an immediate fulfillment to what these verses are talking about. That Jesus is keeping them from an hour of trouble that were to come on the whole earth and test it. By the grace of God that you are sitting in this room tonight as a true believer... He is holding you every moment of every second of the worst possible things that you could experience in each and every day. He is protecting you. He's given you a local church that you get to go be with around and surround yourself with church friends who will help you make better decisions, who ultimately will lead you not to sin, but to be sanctified. See, that's why the church is so important to be a part of because as we get more enveloped in the local body of Christ, the less we're going to be enveloped in the worldly body of sin. There's a lot of friends that I only hang out with when I go to my old workplace because if I hung out with them outside of it, it would be detrimental. I want nothing to do with that lifestyle anymore. I want nothing to do with what they do and work is a safe place that I can go and know that they have to follow rules to keep a job at least. Right, but I, but I would rather hang out with all of you. I'd rather be the boring guy who just sits at home and hangs out with my wife and my cat then go hang out with some of these people. Even if I do like it, I'd probably still want to hang out with her. Sorry. But it's just how it is. She's pretty cool. But the future, the world is slowly spinning. See, there's a lot of Christian prophets or Christian prophets and teachers and leaders who are like, ah, the more social work we do, the more we help the poor and the needy, the more we do these things, the world's going to get so much better. And as we do enough good, eventually we can reign in heaven. If we just vote in the right president, we can bring heaven to earth. If we, just, if we just get all the liberals out, we're going to be great. If we just get all the Republicans out of the way, we can actually be smart. And for the people who amen the first one, we'll talk about the gospel message later. Because we've allowed our faith to become so politicized that if you are anything but Republican and, I don't know, wearing a tie, you're not saved which is just dumb. Our faith should influence our politics. Our politics don't determine our faith. Our faith should influence our emotions. Our emotions shouldn't influence our faith. 
Why do you think we have so many weird, wonky religions and cults out there that even try to label themselves Christian because they allowed their emotions to determine what Scripture meant, not what Scripture means for itself and what the Holy Spirit had intended? That's why he's saying all these people who you know are out there doing religious work, but yet do not understand the true gospel message, they will understand one day when kingdom come. And the beauty of this statement is, so whether position you hold on whatever topic of the rapture you want to believe, the world is getting ultimately worse, and one day we get to go home to be with Jesus. That's what he's saying. There's nitty-gritty in the most of it after that, and we all love to have those discussions on not tonight, because it's not long enough. I have office hours. But no matter where you stand on the topic of rapture, you cannot deny the fact that ultimately we win. Ultimately, he keeps us from eternal damnation. Ultimately, he keeps us from the eternal separation from his love. Whether it's before, mid, middle, other middle, or after, in the line of whatever you want to believe in end times, guess what? If you're truly his, we're all probably going to be wrong in some way. We all win. Because he is victorious. Because he will keep us. I highlighted, I went through there, between verses 8 through 11, there is 1, 2, uh, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Seven times Jesus is saying, I'm going to do this. I know your works. I will keep you. I have done. I will make their knees bow. I will do this. I will keep you. If you are my co-heir, if you are my brother and sister, I will keep you from all ultimate harm. He says it. You have but little power, but yet I've opened the door. What happens when you take a stand for your faith at school? What happens when you're the only one taking your stand at work? What happens when you're the only one who comes here on a Thursday night and is willing to open up an actual Bible? God says, I will honor that. Because through that, I will work. He says, but you have little power, God, but I'm but one person. He says, but it only takes one. You have but little power, but I have the whole world at my fingertips. I have creation power. I have destruction power. And I love that he says this in verse 11. He says, I'm coming soon. So hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. How beautiful is this statement? Grab hold of what you have. If there is no conviction and yearning towards your relation and submission to Jesus, then we must run back to the cross and see what you truly understood. If, if you're listening to me right now and going, what's wrong with just going on Sundays and going to Sundays after? I don't have to read my Bible Monday through Saturday. I don't have to pray to him. I do that all on Sundays and Thursday nights. If that's where your faith is, if that's your relationship with Jesus just twice a week, you need to run back to the moment you think you understood the gospel and rethink the gospel. Because it's hurting my heart to see so many people explain the gospel to me in this day and age, and it is awful 
It makes me want to cry. Because all it is is this, well, I was, I was doing okay, but like Jesus came along and made it pretty great. Like frosted flakes. They went from good to great just because like some spokesperson showed up that's a tiger. Jesus is a lion. No, like what gospel message did you truly understand in that moment? And there might be some of us still grappling with the idea that Jesus truly holds our eternal soul and that we can be comforted. See, there are a lot of us here tonight that are genuinely saved and yet our flesh will wage war and say, no, but you're still not good enough. Satan will fight against you. Why? Because you have a lot of earthly things that affect how you see Jesus and his love. Whether it's a father who left, a mom who neglected you, whether it's friends who abused you, whether it's relationships that said, oh, we love you if you just do this for us. And after it's over, you're more empty than you've ever been alive. And so you come to Jesus and he genuinely changes your heart and yet you look at him sometimes and you go, but do you truly care? You've been quiet for a little while, but do you truly understand why I'm broken right now, Lord? Why aren't you listening? See, because in those moments, we don't run to him for the comfort. We run to him to condemn him. We approach him with this, with this I deserve mentality. Well, I started my life to you. I deserve to not feel sad anymore. I deserve to be happy all the time. I deserve to go do what I want because I have grace, so I'm allowed to. No, surrender that. Relinquish that. And know that even in the most death-defying, detrimental, horrific moment of your life, if you are in Jesus, you are better off than anyone else. We talked about this with the senior boys last night in youth group. Some of them were struggling with some, some things in the home life. And so their, their idea was that we just ignore it and do our own thing, and then we just move on until they get their act together. And I asked them straight up, I said, okay, but do you pray for them? Well, no, I'm praying for other stuff. You know what the easy, see, prayer is never to change God's mind on his eternal plan. What prayer does is it helps us humble ourselves to know that he actually is working. And when we pray, he realigns our heart with his will. He's not just wandering around. It's not like Elijah with the prophet Baal going like, ah, oh, maybe he's pooping. Maybe if you yell louder, God will hear you. No, he's there. Ever present, ever listening. If you are his, he truly cares. See, I know your works. Jesus knows the heart and the result of all that we will do. I have placed an open door. I will preserve you and I will guard your testimony and your witness to this world. If you stand firm when there's no one else standing with you, he will still work through you. I will bring those false believers and pagan people to truth. How revealing how much he loves us. He loves us so much that even when we're suffering in the moments of just, you don't even know if you can make it to tomorrow, yet you have peace in the midst of those situations. That's going to shine a truth to the world around us like never before, especially in this day and age. With death and disease and, and attacks and war so rampant. When we can have a peace in the midst of it all, that speaks to the power of the gospel. That speaks to the power of the change that's in your heart. And so we close. He says, then 
the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Verse 13, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. See, the opening verse, the opening of verse in verse 12 states that the one who conquers. It's, I love that Jesus does this. I love, I love that he, he's like, if you persevere, if you conquer, like, I'll be right there at the finish line. But yet in the gospel message, he says, guess what? You'll never even start at the start line. So I'm going to carry you through. How amazing is it actually to think that he's saying, to those who conquer, you're going to get this all along going, you got this. Right? It's like that dad who just like, they know you're going to make the race because he's seen the other kids run. They can barely, they got like two left shoes on. But yet he's still like, you got this. You can do this. If you conquer, we got this. We're going to get a slurpee after this. Like you're going to do so good. The whole time he knows the other kid didn't even stretch. And yet that dad is so just enamored with with this kid just going, yes, you can do this. And then at the end, he's like, I knew it. But if he, what? Like, if you knew it, why were you yelling at me? Don't we, we love that about the parents that we do have in our lives, to the, the people in our lives who speak truth in us and, and, and encourage us. It might not be a parent, it might be a grandparent, it might be a friend who's just like, man, I know you can do it. And then when it happens, they're like, I knew it all along. You got this. That's what Jesus is doing for us. He says, I'll make you a pillar. Go to any building that still has pillars, I guess, left in them and try and move it. Try walk up and push it. We'll wait. It'll take you a while. Probably never. Why? Because if you're a pillar in the temple of the Lord, you're eternally set. It is set in stone. The moment you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you become a pillar in the kingdom of God. You will not be moved. And he says, I'm going to see you in our eternal home. That is the beauty of how he's encouraging this church. He's saying, man, life sucks and it's going to get worse, but guess what? I got you. Not only do I solidify the end of the story for you, like some people who like to read the last chapter before they finish the book. There's some of you out there. I've seen you smile. My mom does it irritating but man like he we get the end of the story we get the reality that we get to be home one day with christ jesus and yet he's saying man today you're going to conquer today if you are faithful you will conquer but also i'm going to help you be the one to conquer how beautiful is that We can never again fully leave his sight. Because once he says that you're a pillar, he says you'll never leave. See, so there's some of you in this room tonight who think you've walked too far. Or like you're like Adam and Eve in the garden thinking that you can hide behind a couple bushes from God Almighty. Or just like, man, God's given up. I've, I've gone too far. You've never gone too far. If you were truly his, 
You might get wrecked to get your attention. God used a car and a drunk driver to get mine. And I'll fully say it. I have no, I have no beef saying that God used a drunk driver to get my life back together. Whether I died in that moment or I'm here now today, he used that moment. Because in my heart, I was placing idols in my heart every day. I was saying, God, I'll do this, but I'm going to do it my way. God, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it through soccer and track. God, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it through soccer and track. I'm going to do it. And then he took away every single inkling or thought that soccer and track would ever be in my life again. But you know what it did? It it woke me up to the reality of, man, if I truly am his, he ain't going to let me walk around like an idiot too long. It's usually because we ignore the Spirit's movement in our life. We start to ignore the billboards. We start to ignore the exit signs, and finally a drunk driver hits you. But he'll get your attention. If you're truly his, stop looking at the consequences in your life as just constant condemnation and that God's mad at you. No, he's doing this so that you will truly see his love and that you'll see his plan and that you'll know that you are a son and daughter of him. So this is what I want to leave with you tonight. Point number one, for those of you guys who are going to write them down, they're also up on there. When fear and doubt come, remember the key master, Jesus. See, he holds the key, the keys of life and death in Hades, and he also has the kingdom of God. How beautiful is that picture that we read in Revelation 1 where Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I hold the keys to death, life, and Hades. And now just a few chapters later, he's saying, I hold the keys to the kingdom of God. I control earth. I control heaven. There is nowhere you can go that I do not control. So when fear and doubt come your way, remember to fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the one who holds the keys, not you. Point number two, when feeling lost, remember the Jesus signs of hope, desire for the word and his name. So when you're struggling through a situation or you're struggling through the fact that God feels distant, and you're struggling with, should I read my Bible? Should I not? Should I go hang out with this friend that I know from church? Should I not? Let that be a sign of hope to you. Not a sign of of you're a horrible human being and a horrible follower. No, let that be a sign that God is working through things in your life to pull you back into communion. It's never by accident that that one good friend is always going to text or call you when you're in your worst moments and you've ignored them for six months. You're like, oh, how? You're the one person I would have been able to talk to. What a coinky dink. No, what a God. What a God who's willing to give you signs of hope that even in the midst of your struggle and you feeling lost, he's putting things in your life to bring you back, to bring your eyes back to Calvary. And the last point, when you feel meaningless, remember King Jesus is guiding you to an eternal home and purpose. How beautiful. Jesus says it. I I will not let you go. So hold firm to it. So when you feel like, I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do for a career. I don't know if I'm going to be able to go to school. I don't, I don't even have any friends left. Like life is meaningless. 
My family member has died. My best friend has been killed. What is the point anymore? I don't get a cool job like all these people. I don't get to go teach, you know, English like Miss Lang. I'm stuck at whatever, at Circle K. I don't know. They still exist. The point's there. No matter what you are called to do in life, if you are his, there's always purpose. It doesn't matter if you're scuba diving on rigs or driving to Orlando to start a new job. It doesn't matter because all of it will be done in light of King Jesus. He has a plan and a purpose for you. There might be one person in this life you share the gospel with and they fall to their knees and surrender. There might be one person out of the million times you share the gospel, you would have fulfilled your purpose. We're always like, well, this one friend I have is like getting like eight people get saved every week at their intervarsity meeting. Great, good. That might be God's plan for them. But guess what? They didn't reach the friend that you just got to lead to the Lord because God wanted to use you. Working that meaningful job at, you know, Sprouts or teaching Bible at Indian Rocks. When we have King Jesus, we all have a purpose and we all have meaning, and it starts with the gospel. So, as we close tonight, we always do it. We always have the tables. You have your leaders around you here that are scattered amongst you that you can talk with, and Jess and I always sit down front. We don't just sit down front because I'm bored and there's no chairs left. We sit down front so that if you have a question about the questions or a question about something I said, you can call me over to the table. Or if you're wrestling with something deep and important and a leader is busy, you can come sit up here with us and talk to us. That's why we're up here during that time. And I promise you, these three questions, if you zoom through them, you've missed the point. If you just ignore them because now you want to talk about the rapture, you've missed the point. Take this next time to dwell and dig into the questions. I promise this is where the benefit of this ministry takes place. Is when you guys come together around the tables and start talking about the word of God together. Amen? Let's pray and we'll dive into that time. Father, we love you so much. God, we can't, we can't even begin to comprehend the beauty that it means that you hold us for eternity. God, I pray that you work on the hearts of everyone in this room tonight, starting with me. God, we all have doubts. We all have fear. We all fight for purpose and meaning. And God, all of those are answered in the gospel. God, I pray if anyone in this room is wrestling with what that gospel is tonight, Lord, I pray they, they understand that scripture clearly states that they are a sinner and they are on one track to hell and death forever. And yet your word tells us that the eternal gift of God is Christ Jesus that gives us life. And the only way we can get that gift, the only way that that gift becomes tangible to us, the only way we are born again is if we repent and believe the gospel, which is the message that Jesus came, lived a sinless life, bore the cross, took the grave, rose physically from the dead, and then ascended to sit at your right hand until he returns one day. He conquered sin and death. God, we are so thankful he conquered sin and death. And God, we pray that if anyone hears this message for the first time and says, I don't want to be a dead sinner anymore. I want to be a sinner saved by grace. 
God, your scripture tells us that if we believe in our hearts that you rose Jesus from the dead in three days and that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, we are saved. God, if we are struggling with that message tonight, I pray we face it head on and we don't leave that decision untouched tonight. And if there's people in this room struggling and they have the gospel message, Lord, I pray they run back to it and just rest on it. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray this all in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.